Father God, we thank you that we can come together and worship you. Uh, it's simply, it's like a compass. It reorients us to think together, to worship together, to confess our sins together, to look at scripture together. Uh, thank you that we get to be together. Thank you for the opportunity to look at your word now and we would ask, Father, would you be our teacher? Would your spirit, the presence of your spirit in us, speak to us and challenge us and encourage us? For we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior. Amen. Let me give you a little bit of the setting if I can. Moses has been up on a mountain. He's been meeting with the Lord. God has been giving the law to Moses. Uh, the Ten Commandments, which we studied in some detail, but also all of the other instructions in Leviticus and Numbers and so, the book of Numbers. Uh, beautiful pictures were given to us as God gave the, his commands with regards to the building of the tabernacle. This is what we looked at specifically last week. These are pictures in the tabernacle, in the objects that are inside the tabernacle, all about how God intended to dwell among his people. And all also looking forward to, pointing forward to the work that Jesus would one day do. Moses is up on the mountain and he's been gone now for a considerable amount of time. And Exodus 24 tells us that it's 40 days. So a considerable amount of time. And during this time, the Israelites have become restless. And we're going to pick the story up in Exodus chapter 32. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can follow along on the screen. But this is the word of God. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. And so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And so the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Uh, afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That's orgy, dancing, singing, etc. And then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. And they have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff necked People. Now leave me alone so that my anger may, make, uh, may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Serious moment in the history of the people of God. Then God says, I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. 
But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them. And it will be their inheritance forever. Moses kind of calls God on this intention that God has, which is to punish his people, to wipe them out. And he says, wait a minute, God, remember Abraham, remember Isaac, remember Jacob, remember your covenant promises. It's like saying to your spouse, remember the vows you took when we got married. That's what Moses is doing here. He's calling God to remember the covenant promises. And it says, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. And they were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, Joshua is Moses' assistant. He had gone halfway up the mountain with Moses. Uh, and so again, when Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there was a sound of war in the camp. And Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory and it's not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. And when Moses approached the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing and his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that the people had made and burned it in the fire. And then he ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. It's sort of like making them own what they have just done. And Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And what we find then is that the judgment of God is poured out on their idolatry and on their immorality. And it's very severe. The people who reject God, the people who defy God, the people who chose to disobey God are killed. Rather than letting these rebellious Israelites infect and destroy the whole community, which is what they would have done, God judges their sin and actually puts them to death. And about 3,000 people die that day. And then God in Exodus 33 says to Moses, take this stiff-necked people to the land I promised you. I'll send an angel who will go before you and will drive out the inhabitants of the land, but I'm not going to go with you, Moses. That's what God says to Moses. And here we see kind of an amazing thing happen. Moses uh, prays a prayer and he, the prayer uh, of this one man does change things. Moses makes this wonderful, wonderful request. He says to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation 
is your people. He's saying, remember the promises you've made, God. Remember what you've done up to this point. And the Lord replied, it's like, okay, okay, Moses, you're calling me on my promises. And he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Now, Moses is saying, Lord, even though you are offering to send us to a promised land that's flowing with milk and honey and give us security and give us peace and give us prosperity in that promised land. And even though you've given us the law, Lord, I would rather be here in the desert with you than in the promised land without you. That's what this dialogue is about. And you just have to ask yourself, at least I found myself asking uh, myself as I was reading this and thinking about it, would I have said that to God? And God does relent when Moses confronts him again with the promises he's made in the covenant. God says, I will go with you, Moses. I will go with my people. And so anthropomorphically, God changes his mind. Now, the truth of the matter is God never changes his mind. How do we know that? Well, there are multiple places in Scripture where we are told very clearly that God is a God who does not change. But when we're sometimes interacting with God, uh, we speak of him anthropomorphically. We speak of him as if he is a man, a human being. Uh, and, and here is just such an instance. In God's interactions with Moses, we don't fully grasp or understand this, or at least I don't. I mean, this is God interacting with Moses in such a way that solicits certain responses of faith from Moses. Moses is pointing to the covenant. God, remember the covenant. Remember the promises. Remember what you've said. Remember what you've done. And all of this is growing Moses up in his confidence. And then in Moses' request that he makes to God, you know, God responds. God relents. God changes his mind. And I'll just point out that that's how God works in you too. Sometimes in ways that confuse you, ways that are puzzling, but he's always up to something and it's good. It's good for us. And that's exactly what God is up to here. Um, now, uh, turn to Numbers chapter 11. Let's see how the journey is going. Uh, the Israelites now have left Sinai. It's been over a year since they've left Egypt. And about three days into their journey, they're headed north on about a two-week journey, which ought to get them to the promised land, a two-week journey from Sinai. And this is what we read. We read that the rabbles with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Oh yeah, that's right, because you were slaves, you idiots. You didn't pay for it because you ate what was given to you. But when they think back, they remember it as fish with, you know, at no cost and cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. Oh, yeah, you had a big slave buffet every day. Sure you did. But now they say we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna that God was providing for them every single day. If you've ever read these first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, you know uh, that this is kind of a pattern with God's people. This is familiar behavior. Uh, they are complaining about the menu. And Moses is starting to get very upset in these circumstances. 
Numbers chapter 11, verse 10, Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. So they're not just in their tent wailing, they're out in front of their tent. They're all wailing. And the Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled and he asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant, on me, he's saying. What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their fathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? You can just kind of feel the pressure that Moses feels. They're asking him to do something he absolutely cannot do. They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes, kill me. That's what he's saying. And do not let me face my own ruin. So now it's kind of interesting. Everybody's complaining. The people complain to Moses. They're sick of manna. They want meat. Moses complains to God. He's sick of the people. He's sick of bearing their burdens. And so God acts. And he gives Moses actually 70 additional new leaders to help Moses adjudicate all the issues that are constantly bubbling up from the people to the surface. And even there in the desert, God provides what the people are wailing about. He provides them with meat, more meat than they could ever imagine. Meat for a day, meat for a week, meat for a month. Moses says, you will not eat it for just one day or two days or five or 10 or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who was among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? So God gives them exactly, really, what they asked for. Meat for breakfast and meat for lunch and meat for dinner. And you would think maybe, maybe they would start to learn that what you ask for in frustration and anger isn't always really what you need. You see, what they needed is they needed contentment and meat wasn't going to give them that. Meatlessness was not their real problem. Moses diagnosed their real problem back in verse 20. He said, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. And that was their real problem. It's always the real problem. They weren't listening to God. They weren't trusting God. They weren't talking to God. They weren't being content in God. Does any of this sound familiar? Does this sound real foreign to you? I'm, I'm guessing not. You see, things continue for this people to go along this line. In fact, they get worse and worse and worse. They are processing one hard lesson after another. Have you ever noticed how when people are together for long periods of times in close quarters, even if you're friends, even if they're family, that you start to get on each other's nerves? Well, this trip that these people are on, living in tents together, and there are many, many, many of them, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, this journey lasts for 40 years, 40 years. And in the context of this journey, all kinds of jealousies arise and all kinds of quarreling happens. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 26, two men, Eldad and Medad, there's two names for you, for your children. They start prophesying, 
okay? And normally only Moses does this, at least up to this point. And so Joshua, Moses' protege, is very concerned that others are doing what only Moses does. And so Joshua goes to Moses and says, you better stop these guys. And uh, it's kind of interesting. Moses replies and says, well, are you jealous for my sake? What Moses is saying to Joshua is, don't be jealous. Don't worry about me. Are you kidding? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them, on all of them. Moses is saying, I really don't want to be more special or more unique or more spiritual than anybody else. I wish that God would put his spirit on and in all the people. Now, would that that were all of the quarreling that was happening, but there's more. Numbers chapter 12 says, from Kibroth Hatava, the people traveled to Hazaroth and stayed there. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this, we're told. Well, this is interesting. So Miriam and Aaron don't like Moses' wife. She's a Cushite, which would be today roughly Ethiopia. Northern Africa. And this is probably not Zipporah. This is most likely a second wife that Moses has married. And uh, his brother and his sister do not like her. And they're talking about her. Now, in addition, Miriam and Aaron don't like following Moses' orders. That bothers them as well. And they start making trouble for Moses. Can you imagine how difficult this is? He doesn't have too many people he can confide in. Aaron was one of them. Miriam was another. But now they are making trouble for Moses. They are criticizing his wife, slandering her, and challenging his authority as he tries to lead this stiff-necked people. And underneath it all is something as simple as jealousy. And God takes notice. And so he visits the three of them in a cloud of glory and he reaffirms Moses' leadership, which, by the way, he has had to do several times in the history of God's people wandering around in the wilderness. There are constant challenges to Moses' leadership. We read these words in Numbers 12. It says, the anger of the Lord burned against them, against Aaron and against Miriam for what they had been doing. And he left them. And when the cloud lifted this cloud of glory from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. Now understand, this is very serious for several reasons. One reason would be you die from this. But the other reason would be that when you were found to be with a leprous skin disease, you were to be put out of the community. Oh, you could follow the community from a great distance, but you could no longer live among them. Couldn't pitch your tent with them. You were now ostracized out of the community. This is God's judgment on Miriam for what she has done. This rebellion that she's been perpetrating. Her skin turns leprous. Aaron pleads with Moses, Moses, please pray for Miriam. And Moses does pray. And he says one of the shortest prayers in all the Old Testament. In verse 13, he says, please God, heal her. And amazingly, God does. But it takes seven days. 
And you just got to wonder a little bit if under his breath when Moses was praying, he said, God, please heal her, but <clears throat> not necessarily quickly. <laughs> and this time period, the seven days gives Miriam and Aaron a lot of time to think and a lot of time to process and a lot of time to repent. Now, just question. Think about this. Where, where does jealousy and envy and things like that, where, where do those things come from? Tell you what I think. <laughs> I think that if you start peeling away the layers, you discover that they always come from a person not hearing God and not trusting God. That's where those things come from. Miriam and Aaron couldn't trust that God's love or God's care or God's reward or God's blessing on their lives was enough. They wanted something different. They wanted something more than they were getting. And, and all of this bubbles up inside of them and they start comparing themselves with Moses. Well, why does he get to do that? Why does he speak for God? I mean, why, why does he give the orders? And all of this comparison, this, these competitive tensions begin to grow and envy and jealousy arise just like it does in you and me. Same thing. Underneath all of that stuff really is just the inability or probably more uh, correctly, the refusal to hear God, to listen to God to do life with God, the refusal to say, okay, God, you actually know best what is for me. I'll take the manna that you gave me today. That's enough for me. I'll be content. Give you a little insight into how this works in the life of a pastor. It was many years ago that Holly and I came here, 1987, to start this church, to plant this church. I was sure at the time, although I would never have said it, you can only say it as an old man about to die. But, I, but I, I was sure at the time, by now, we'd be at least 10,000 strong. You know, at least. And, um, and lo and behold, that did not happen. Wow, God, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing more? Not being content with the gifting that God has given me or the purpose that God has for the church that I get to pastor and so on and so forth and yada, yada, yada. One of the things God has had to teach me over the years, and it's funny how we learn things, but then we keep relearning them. At least that's how it works in my life is just to be content with what God has given you and see the purpose in it and, and see the appropriateness in it. In fact, the perfection in it as it relates to you. In this case, as it relates to me. And then finding great joy in that place by, by simply listening to God and trusting God and knowing that God has this thing, whatever the thing happens to be. And one of the things today in my life that I'm the most thankful for is this church and what it does and how God uses it, uses you, uses me, uses us together. And now looking back, I can see all kinds of wisdom and why uh, I'm not pastoring a church of 10,000. I'd have my own jet. <laughs> I'd probably have a helicopter too. I would probably be dishonoring God all over the place with a lot of nonsense. Thank God he knows better than me. Thank God. Um, this brings us to a really great crossroads um, of the wilderness experience for the people of Israel. 
This is Numbers 13. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe. Send one of its leaders. And so Moses does that. He sends out the 12 scouts, the 12 spies, and they are in the desert of Paran, which is quite close to Canaan. They, they could enter Canaan now at this point very easily. And, and so the spies take off. They're gone for about 40 days spying out the promised land. And they come back and they file their report. And here's a part of their report. This is Numbers 13. It says, they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them, to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They brought back some of the produce that they had taken. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. God is faithful. God is good at honoring his promises. And here is its fruit. But, they said, this is a huge but. The people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. And we even saw descendants of Anak there. Anak and his descendants were really large people. Giants, some people call them. They were huge, like playing the tallest NBA players. You know, that, that's what this is like. In other words, they're saying, man, the promised land is a real dangerous place. There's fortified cities. The people, there are really strong. They're really powerful. We do not think we can or should go into the promised land. And the people are very discouraged, as you might well imagine about this. But there's also a minority report that's posted by Joshua and Caleb, two of the 12 that went in. It says, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They lied. And they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw are of great size. And so the people don't believe Joshua. They don't believe Caleb. They're afraid. They don't believe that God's protection would be enough for them. God's power would be enough for them one day at a time in this new land, in this venture that God is calling them to. And then there's this real poignant, I think, image that we're given. We read in Numbers 13, 33, it says, All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim, and we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So the 10 explorers went around spreading this report. The people in the promised land are huge and we look like grasshoppers to them. <laughs> That's a great image. You know, we're just, we're just tiny little people compared to the people in the promised land. <laughs> we're like insects. We're like itty bitty grasshoppers to the promised land people. We have no strength compared to them. We could never conquer them. So now what, what do we do? And the tragedy is that this generation would never see themselves ever as anything other than a grasshopper. Not ever. They would never, uh, when they look in a mirror, see anything but a grasshopper. Uh, they were never really willing to trust God for this adventure, this journey, this challenge that he was calling them on, something where they would need to trust him every single day. 
And so we read that that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud and all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, uh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. And then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And so God shows up again in this context, in all his glory. And essentially what he tells them is, okay, grasshoppers don't have to go into the promised land. You get your wish. You will stay in the wilderness. None of you who have seen me deliver you time and time and time and time again will ever enter the promised land. Your entire generation will die in the desert. And so God gives them essentially what they want. It's back to the wilderness, but they're just like kids. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Oh, now they get it. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country. This is where, you know, in the promised land, saying, now we're ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there because you have turned away from the Lord. He will not be with you and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. And so God says, go, and they say, no, we don't want to go. And then God says, okay, you're staying, you're not going. And they say, no, we don't want to stay, we want to go. And so they go, they go without Moses, they go without the ark, and more importantly, they go without God. And they get badly defeated by the enemy, just as Moses said, which is not surprising, is it? But I'll show you what is surprising. What's surprising is that this God does not desert his people even now. That's remarkably surprising to me. Instead, he stays with them in the wilderness. He keeps watch over them in the wilderness. He keeps supplying them with manna day in, day out, even though they complain about it in the wilderness. He even pardons them. Numbers chapter 14, he tells Moses, I have forgiven them as you asked, Moses. But here's the sad deal, friends. 
they will never, ever know what might have been. What entering the promised land would have been like. That, you see, they will never, ever know. They will die in the wilderness for lack of trust and lack of obedience. They will get the wilderness instead of the promised land. It reminds me of, many of you are familiar with this picture, a C.S. Lewis picture of children choosing to play in a mud puddle, you know, instead of going to the ocean and enjoying the beach. You're familiar with that one? C.S. Lewis says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with stuff that we think we need more than God, things like drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's not that we want too much, it's that we want too little from God. And the truth in all of this is, let's be honest, Yes, these Israelites are grasshoppers. Yes, they were inadequate, they were incompetent, they were too weak to conquer the promised land. But God is not. And he was with them, just like he is with us. The question wasn't, can we conquer the people in the promised land? The question was, what does God want us to do? The question was, would they listen? Would they trust? Would they follow? Because that's what a disciple does. That's what a child of God does. He just follows. She just follows. And essentially their answer was very simple. It was no, no, nope, we won't. And it's such a sad thing. A whole generation of Israelites would never get where God wanted them to go because they wouldn't trust and obey God. They just focused on the fact that they were grasshoppers. And let's be clear. We are grasshoppers too. But so what? Let's get our eyes off of us. Let's get our eyes off of who we are or what we can or can't do. And let's get our eyes on God and let's trust God. Let's listen to God. Let's go where God wants us to go. And one thing is for sure, if we do, oh man, the adventure will be incredible. It will. Friends, here's the deal. If you know God wants you to go somewhere, if you know God wants you to do something, then do it. If God wants you to work on a marriage that's about to die, then work on that marriage. If you need help figuring out how, call us. We'll try to help you. If you know God wants you to improve your parenting, then improve your parenting. Read, get counseling. Parenting and how you parent is important. If you know God wants you to get out of debt, then get out of debt. Make a plan. If you know God wants you to stop a bad habit, an addiction that has a hold on you, then get out of that bad habit. If you need help, ask for help. 
If you know that God wants you to start honoring with your finances or with your spiritual gifts or in the use of your time, serving in some from ministry, some form of ministry, whatever it is, if you know God wants you to do something, then do it. So what if you're a grasshopper? Just follow him. And eventually you will get out of the mud puddle and all the way to the beach. And it will be so much better. Now, I want to look at one more episode in the wilderness. This is in Numbers chapter 20. It says, now there was no water for the community and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and they quarreled with Moses. And they said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. And they happened to be referring to a time a little earlier when a guy named Korah and Dathan and Abiram uh, back in Numbers 16, rebelled and 250 other leaders of, of Israel rebelled against Moses and, and Aaron and their leadership. And that didn't go so well for them. They end up, the earth was swallowing them and killed them all and not a good thing, but uh, that's what they're referring to. If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord, because that was a great moment. They say, why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? Because life in slavery in Egypt was so much better. They say it has no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates and there is no water to drink. This is all getting very repetitive, isn't it? It goes on, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for this community so they and their livestock can drink. And so Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. And he gathered, uh, and, and he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and he struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out in the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Moses, you're not going into the promised land. <laughs> wow, I did not see that coming. That's a big surprise. Moses, God's man, God's leader, the prophet who speaks face to face with God is now not going to bring this community into the promised land. And at first that seems kind of severe. I mean, why does God treat Moses this way? And I'll, I'll tell you what I think. I think the key is back there in verse 10, Numbers 20, verse 10. When Moses turns to the people and he says, listen, you rebels, must we, he doesn't say must God, he says, must we bring you water from this rock? And then he dramatically strikes the rock twice instead of speaking to it the way God instructed him to do. And the implication in all of that is that, that Moses is kind of presenting himself and Aaron as the two miracle workers who are always bailing Israel out of its promises, or out of its problems. 
They're the ones, again, having to help the people of God. And, and he's tired of it. Must we bring you water from this rock again? And that right there, friends, is so dangerous. It's dangerous for Moses. And it's also dangerous for the people of Israel. God has said, he's made it very clear multiple times in his word. I am the Lord. This is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Why? Why not, God? Well, because it's so wrong and unhealthy if people are trusting in something or someone else other than me for anything. Now think about this. The Israelites were used to thinking that their leader was a God. That's what Pharaoh had claimed to be, a God. And it was Moses' task to teach the Israelites that there is only one sovereign God, Lord of the universe, only one ruler, and it's not a man. It never is. And up to now, Moses has been exceedingly humble. How do we know that? Well, he told us so. In Numbers chapter 12, Moses wrote, you know, the first five books of the Bible. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, really, probably what we see here is that that's an instance. There are, there are several places in the, the first five books where you can look at them, and especially in these latter books of the Pentateuch, where we suspect that Moses didn't write that section, simply because, for example, his death is written about. That would be hard for him to write about. Uh, just like probably it would be hard for him to say this if indeed that was true. So we don't really suspect that he wrote that. But uh, nevertheless, we do know he was humble. And we do observe in the life of Moses that he is very careful about giving all the credit and all the glory to God again and again and again and again, except here. Here he puts himself forward. Why must we bring you water, he says. And the danger here, I think, too, for Israel is that Israel will start to think that Moses is their godlike leader. He meets God on the Mount, Mount Sinai. He talks face to face with God. He performs miracles. The danger is that people would become so dependent on Moses that it would retard, maybe even destroy the growth of the next generation who will need to trust God and follow God to drive out the Canaanites from the promised land. So God says, when the time comes to enter the promised land, Moses, you're not going. You're not going to be there. And this seems severe to us, but really what it is, is it's oftentimes what, what God does or the way God operates. It's a severe mercy is what it is. Moses is going to go to heaven. Oh, last time I checked 24-7, heaven beats promised land. So it's not really such a severe punishment. It's almost a reward. And that right there is where we're going to leave the people. We're going to leave them in the wilderness, in the desert this morning. But before we stop here, I just want to ask you a question. And that's this, you know, we're all on a journey. <laughs> and I would just ask you, how is your journey going? We've just looked at the journey of the Israelites and the journey of Aaron and the journey of Miriam and the journey of Moses. How is your journey going? Maybe you're in a place that feels like you're in the wilderness and you've been there for a long, long time. I hope you see that even there, God has things that he wants to teach you in the wilderness. The wilderness has purpose even if you die there. There's purpose. 
You see, if you will listen and you will obey and you will follow him, the wilderness is a place to grow. It's a place to honor God, to give God glory. And dads, I'll just talk to you this morning since this is, uh, says our culture, your day. You do understand this is what dadding is all about, right? It's not real complicated. I didn't say it's not hard. It's real hard, but it's not real complicated. Being a dad is about reminding people, your family, your wife, your children, that God is with you. Yeah, you're a dang grasshopper. A lot of what dads do in their life is pretend, pretend, pretend they're not a grasshopper. Well, I got news for you. You're not fooling anybody. You're a grasshopper. But God is not. God is not. And God is with you. And God is with your family. I don't care what your family's going through. God is with you. And that is what makes the difference. And your challenge is to remind your family that God is with you. And that you will follow him. Why do you think we've got a savior named Emmanuel? God with us. All of these stories that we're looking at, all of these events that happen, all of these lessons that are actually offered to us in the word of God, they're all pointing to Jesus. The one who came to us when we didn't want him. The one who saved us when we didn't care. The one who is with us when we forget. Dads, don't forget. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we read these stories and, and we just kind of shake our heads and think, well, those people were idiots. They were such losers. They never got it right, it seems like. And then when we sober up, we, we realize that we are right there with them. We need to keep it simple, Father. We, we need to remember who you are regardless of who we are. And we need to trust you. And we need to obey you. And we need to remember our Savior who is God with us. The God who will save us and provide for us and care for us and love us and our families even when our loving is very poor. Thank you, God, for your word, which encourages us and builds us up and strengthens us. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.